Hey, 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26. And if you've been following along together with us as we've been studying 1 Samuel, you'll know that Saul is still hunting David like an animal. And it seems like quite literally he is hell-bent on finding and killing David Right? Well, chapter 26, we find David with another golden opportunity to kill Saul. You may remember the first time that he got a golden opportunity to kill Saul. Just two weeks ago in chapter 24, you remember? He found Saul quite literally with his pants down in a cave. And his guys are like, hey. God delivered him to you. Kill him. And David, if you remember the story, just cuts a little piece of his robe off. Dramatic evidence of how a king should act. Right? God's king. Dramatic proof that he wasn't going to return evil for evil. He was going to return evil with good in kindness and mercy, right? He acted kingly. Really, he acted godly there. He had a golden opportunity, but he didn't take it. In chapter 26 that we'll see, it's almost the mere image. There are some nuances, but he gets another chance at it. And we're going to find out, does he say, fool me once blame you, but fool me twice, blame me? Is he going to cash in on this opportunity? Or is he going to act kingly again? And I think what we're going to see here today, and it's the lesson we want to learn today, I think, through this story, is we're going to find David leaving everything in God's hands. He has this golden opportunity to cash in again, to end this finally. And as we'll see, he just I entitled this, Letting God Be God, Leave It to God. And that's what he decides to do. And I think it's encouraging. And I think as we go through it, it'd be wise for us to think about if David could pass on a golden opportunity the second time on ending this. Some people say 10, 15 years this thing went on. He could end it. He's going to pass on it. If he can pass on that, by giving it to the Lord. I wonder if you and I can let God be God in our lives, in our little problems, our little hurts. Amen? That's where we're heading. Let's check it out. 26, verse 1. Then the Zephites came to Saul at Gebeah and, said, and saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hachilah, which is on the east side of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hachilah, which is beside the road east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. So... Does anybody remember the last time we saw Saul? We didn't see him last week, right? Last week was about Nabal and Abigail saving the day, 
making sure David didn't do anything he would regret. We haven't heard Saul. The last time we heard Saul, we saw Saul crying because of the goodness that David showed him by cutting his robe, not cutting his throat in the cave. Do you remember? He said, oh, David, you're so awesome. You're so righteous. You're better than me. You're going to rule this kingdom. David, please promise me you won't kill all my kids because you're going to be the king. And it said he was crying. Let me read you the end of 24. This is Paul's response to the last time David saved his bacon. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me with goodness, where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dwelt well with me, in that you did not kill me when you had the chance, and Lord put me in your hands. That's the last time we heard from Saul. Now, now is, oh, David's in the, I'm crying, you're, the, you're awesome. Now, someone just said, hey, he's over here. Okay, let's bring 3,000 guys and let's kill him. Does that seem weird to you? And it's been going on now for chapters. It reminds me, like, I don't think Saul's changing. And I know David's not going to change, right? It's kind of like, have you ever seen that? Remember that? It's not very popular, but do you remember the Looney Tune cartoon? It was like uh, Ralph the Wolf and Sam the Sheepdog. Do you remember that? It was like, they're really cordial. They had roles to play, right? The wolf was supposed to eat sheep and the sheepdog was supposed to, right? S- supposed to protect the sheep. And they were very cordial before work right? They'd bring their lunch pails and their thermos. Hey, Ralph. Hey, Sam. Right? And then, and, then, and then at lunchtime, when the whistle blew, they were very nice to each other. But soon as the whistle blew and work started, it was like game on. Right? It was game on. He was going to try to kill sheep, and Sam was going to beat him in the head. And it was like, and then, but the whistle blew. See you tomorrow, Sam. Later, Ralph. Right? And, it, and, and the, you know, the, the time clock was on the tree. Remember this? <laughs> That's what I thought of. I'm like, Okay, he's back at it, right? Saul's back at it because he's Ralph the wolf. And what he does is he's, he's gonna find David and he's gonna try to kill him. No matter how sweet his words are, no matter how much he cries and how much he says, it's not godly repentance. He's gonna kill David if he gets a chance, right? Ralph the wolf. Is all it took to spark this conflict was, I don't know if you caught it, but it was the Zephites betraying David again. It's not the first time they did this. Chapter 23, he did, they did the same thing. They basically tattled on David. You know, and being one of five kids growing up, my mom always had this rule, and I'll never forget it. When we, when we went to mom, ah, so-and-so's doing this or that, and she always used to say the same thing. Are you tattling or are you reporting? <laughs> that was what she said to us. But, like, is this for everybody's good? Are you giving me information that's gonna help all of us, or are you just trying to get someone in trouble? They were tattling. That's what they were doing. They're trying to gain favor. That's what you do when you tattle, right? You're trying, to, you're trying to get that parent with you against the sibling. And that's what these guys are doing. They're just trying to gain favor of Saul. I think they were tattling. That's what sparked this. Ralph the Wolf's back at it again. Check out verse five. We'll see what David does. You'll see that he'll get another opportunity to kill Saul. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, where Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army, Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said 
to Hamelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So here's the scene. David sends some spies out after they get back and say, yeah, Saul's, Saul's on the other hilltop over here. He, he came again with 3,000 guys. David immediately, boldly, courageously rounds up his nephew and says, let's go check it out. Let's take the fight to him. I, there's a lot to like about David, a ton. But David, if he's nothing else, is very bold he is not playing for a tie. He is not competing here not to lose. He wants to win. He's going to go take the fight. I love this about him. I'm telling you, I could have made David a really good wrestler. <laughs> he has it. He's not going to play defense. If I heard that 3,000 people were after me, the hillside over, I probably would have went to the next hill. I would have kept going. I would have, I would have ran away, <laughs> right? Wouldn't you? He goes, nope, let's go check it out. And the scene is this, 3,000 men in a circle, right? 3,000 men in a circle. That's a lot of men, a lot of army, good force. His personal bodyguard and the commander of the army, Abner, right next to him, guarding him. That's what they're up against. And there is a spear, Saul's personal spear, right next to his head, stuck in the ground. And you got David and his nephew, Abishai, checking it out. They sneak into camp. <laughs> Abishai, if you caught it, it's like, hey, David, oh, man, God has brought you right. We got it. We got it, David. He's delivered him. Let me... You don't even have to worry about touching God's anointed. Let me take that spear and with one stroke kill him. And I'm not going to miss and I'm not going to do it twice like he did to you in the king's court. Remember back when all this started, when he threw that spear at him twice? Little pun on words. Abishai's like, I I'm going to do it one time and that'll be enough. Let's kill this guy. I'm tired of this. We've been on the lamb for a long time. Let's do this. Hmm. How do you think David is going to respond? You already know, you already know but have you, have you ever thought when you read Bible stories, how would I respond? First David, is he going to be responding like chapter 24? The good David, the merciful David? With his golden opportunity, he shows mercy, does not repay evil for evil, or will it be David chapter 25? You were here last week with Pastor Matt. Man, he wanted to go kill a bunch of people because he didn't treat his guys right. Right? Thank goodness for Abigail, 
who saved him from doing something that would have changed the trajectory probably of his life. Amen? Is it going to be that David? <laughs> what David's it going to be? Did David learn the lesson of chapter 25? Because it's one thing knowing something, right? Another thing, putting it into practice after you've learned it. Which David would it be? But I think the better question for all of us is, what would you do? And I'm not talking spears, because there's not a lot of spears around anymore. <laughs> it's a golden opportunity, seems like an open door, to pay someone back for real pain, real unrighteousness, correct? Would we say, hey, listen, we gave this guy a chance, and he still came after us. This guy's dangerous. He would be justified, I think, in killing him. I think I would be. Or, would we say it's okay, but then hold it against him and later get him? Remember what we do sometimes when people hurt us? Maybe it's just me. But sometimes I just mark people. And then when there's a chance, <laughs> down the road, maybe not with a spear or a sword, but maybe a cut here or there on their reputation when their name comes up. Am I speaking, am, am I speaking to the right people here today? Or is it just me? Oh, God help us all. All along we say things like, in our hearts, that was for earlier. Amen? That's what I'm talking about. What would you do when you got a golden opportunity to pay someone back and it could not come back on you? You got political cover. No one would ever know. Oh, I find myself saying that was for earlier, quite often in my life. And I remember the first time I realized I was raising savages, not kids. And I am not exaggerating. It was the first time my wife let me have the kids over a weekend. I think they were like five and three. Ryan, the older, was five. Gabe was three. And I remember thinking, I'm raising savages. And they're scaring me because I'm seeing myself in them, <laughs> right? I had that epiphany. And I remember my wife's like, can you handle this? I'm like, can I handle this? Who are you talking to? And it turns out, turns out, what wives do is pretty amazing. Amen? <laughs> right? Hey, mothers with young kids, God bless you. God bless you. And I'm being serious right now. Your greatest fulfillment will be fulfilling your role as a godly mother. I promise you, it'll be, it's a blessing. And you guys are really good at it. Sometimes guys aren't as good at it. You guys are special. Anyways, so they, my wife didn't get down the driveway before my kids got in a fight. And I don't know how your kids fight when they're young, but my kids really fought. Like blood and stuff. I, maybe I wasn't a good dad, but it, it, it was really. It was, so she doesn't get down the driveway 
And what ended up happening was the younger one, they call it false cracking or sucker punching, false crack, like not looking and whacked his older brother. And before they, the older one made it good, I separated. I'm like, you can't fight, man. Mom's gone. Come on. You guys say sorry and separate. But the older one did not get to pay back, brother. Didn't get his paybacks from the false crack. And I said, listen, you guys, not, not this weekend. We're going to do good here. You say you're sorry. Sorry. You say you're sorry. Sorry. Hmm. I think there was still black hearts in there because it wasn't two and a half days later, right before mom got home on Sunday, right? I washed the week. I wanted to wash the weekend off of them, right? Filled up the tub, put soap in there, threw them both in there and threw a bunch of toys in there. I turned around to get towels and the older one who didn't get his paybacks two days later, as I catch out of the glance of my eye when I'm grabbing towels, I saw the younger one playing with his ducky in his, in his, little, his, little, his little ship. And next thing, and Ryan just goes, bam, right in the nose, blood everywhere. He slides down this tub, goes under, water everywhere, blood's everywhere. I'm just like, oh my gosh, savages. What in the world is happening right now? And I get him up off the ground and it's all Ryan had to say for himself was he pointed at his brother and he said, that was for earlier. (laughs) That's all he had to say. I laugh at that story and maybe you do too, but we do that all the time. We hold it inside our black little hearts. We have a golden opportunity to cash in and we do it all the time with those little comments, right? With those little cuts, slowly but surely, So, hey, no more that's for earliers, right? (laughs) David, we'll see, did not do that. He responds to this opportunity, as we'll see, by leaving it up to God to repay Saul. Check it out. It's freeing. It will lighten your heart. It'll keep you out of the revenge business, which pays very poorly if you haven't noticed. Amen? Check it out. Verse 9. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him down. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep came from the Lord had fallen upon them. So David takes a pass on his second golden ticket to end it all. He acts kingly and godly, and he says, nope. And I don't know if you caught it, but he put it in God's hands. He said, listen, he, God doesn't need me to kill Saul. He had already lifted his anointing off him, right? He had already given it to David, but it hasn't actually been actualized yet. The Lord's letting it play out to build a godly king, or for whatever reason God has, to let this continue But he puts it in God's hands. 
He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him down. If he wants him dead, God can kill him. Or he will just die. His day, Jesus Christ holds the keys to life and death. He'll just die. Or he'll go to battle and he'll die. Listen, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I'm putting it in God's hands, he says. Man. That's a godly quality to let go and let God be God. Is it not? It's so freeing that God, that David got the principles of Romans chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 12. They're principles that we don't need to repay evil with evil. We don't need to avenge ourselves. It says in Romans 12, don't avenge yourselves. Let God avenge you. Right? He, vengeance is whose? It's his. It's not our job. God sees everything. He sees it all. So when somebody does you dirt, don't think that God doesn't see it for a minute. And it's not our job to tit for tat. That's for earlier. I'm going to cut you when I can. That is a bad business to be in. This avengeful, revengeful business. It'll lead to a wasted life. God sees everything. Those of you that are hanging on to something right now, or you just found yourself nicking people because you've been hurt, realize it's not our job. It's God sees it. He's going to make it all right someday. Amen. He's going to make it all right someday. He's a holy and righteous God. And he will judge the things that happen on this earth someday. Trust me. And when he comes back to do that, he's going to set all things right. He's going to do that. Amen. He's holy and he's righteous. In Hebrews chapter 12, but the problem I have with is a believer. Yeah, we can be the worst of them. Trust me. I thought God's wrath wasn't for believers. Well, I, I happen to believe that to be true, God's final wrath. But guess what? Hebrews chapter 12 says, he who he loves, his sons, the people who believe in him and are saved, he will take you to the woodshed if he needs to. He chastises or spanks whom he loves. If you are in sin and you are doing dirt, you don't have to worry about it. God is going to set everything right. It's not our job to be the judges and the juries. You let him do it. Revenge business does not pay, and it is a wasted life, and it is a barren life. And if you're struggling with that, please take Indigo Montoya's word for it. Anybody know Indigo Matoya? Okay, Indigo Matoya from that epic, epic fairy tale, The Princess Bride. Indigo Matoya, right? He spends his whole life trying to avenge his father's death, the man with the six fingers, right? He, he gives his whole life up to learn how to cut him with a sword and to be a fencer, and when the chance comes, he will look him in the eye. And everybody's favorite quote is, he's going to walk up to him and say, my name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Right? But that's not the best quote that Indigo Montoya says in the, in the movie. It's not. It's one of the last things he said in the whole movie. It's after he killed the man with the six fingers. 
Remember when they're jumping out of the window on the white horses and going happily ever after? Do you remember Wesley, the main character, he asked Indigo, Indigo, what are you going to do now, now that you, you got everything you wanted? And he said one of the most saddest quotes, and it should resonate with all of us who have held things in our heart. He said, it's a very strange thing, Wesley. I've been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> it's a wasted life. We need to let God be God and be the judge and set things right and let it go. Cut it loose. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what I got out of that. I hope it helped you. David now confronts Saul and his army. Check it out in verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill and with a great space between the two parties. David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, why, who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water is that is on his head. So David's talking a little trash to Abner. If you caught the sarcasm, you're not, you're not very good at what you do. Your whole job, Abner, is to protect the king and check out what I got. I got his spear and his jug of water that was by his hand. You should die, Abner. You're not good at what you do. Check this out. Talking a little smack. Kind of like that. He continues, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. And verse 20, now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a, a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So after, after David is yelling over the gulf between the two parties, showing Abner the spear, riling him up, saying, you didn't do your job. In essence, I protected the king more than you did. Really? Saul hears the conversation and says, is that you, David? He said, yeah, it's, it's me, O king. <laughs> and I don't know if you know or if you caught it. David speaks to me so graciously when he's so right to a man who is so wrong right now. Amen? He's so gracious with his speaking. He leaves him a way out, and this is brilliant. To use a Matt Heverly word, brilliant. If you want to talk to somebody when you're in this position, 
He's in the right, they're in the wrong. I don't know if you noticed what he did, but he let a way out for Saul. He let a way out. Here's what I know when you put someone in a corner, they're probably gonna try to punch you. Let them out. <laughs> try to let, give them grace. Let them out so you can start a conversation and start the healing. He says here, if it is the Lord who stirred you up against me, let's just do an offering. So Saul, even if it's not your fault, and if it's another man, curse him. In other words, hey, this is a translation. If it's not you that really wants to kill me, whatever you do, don't kill me. Don't let him kill me. He's giving him a way out, speaking graciously with him. I really feel like that's not to be overlooked. He's letting him off the hook even though he was right and Saul was wrong. And Saul likes the way he talks to him, like he always does. When he realized David got him, that gotcha moment, here's your spear. <laughs> Did you want your water? Were you thirsty? <laughs> it's over here now. <laughs> hey. I just snuck in with my nephew, Abishai, and took your spear and your water. Don't kill me. And if it was someone else, could, could you not let them kill me? This is Paul's, uh, Saul's response. He apologizes like he always does. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Those are some good words. That's a start, don't you think? Those are great words. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hands today, and I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in all of them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Amen? He apologizes. He says some good words. He's sorrowful or sorry as we say it right we're sorry but the question I guess it would be is he is it godly sorrow is it a sorrow as Paul would say in 2nd Corinthians chapter 7 is it a godly sorrow that leads to repentance right that leads to godly change because the word sorry only means something if it comes and comes from a changed heart and actions. So when you say to someone, I'm sorry, what you're supposed to be saying is, I repent from what I did and I'm changing my ways from the depths of my heart to my hands and my feet. It's godly repentance. Paul did write to the Corinthian believers saying, Something like this. <laughs> he, he, he wrote a letter to them because they were in sin. And it was a harsh letter. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says something like this. He says around verse 10, 
I'm not sorry. I don't feel bad about making you feel sorryful. I don't feel bad that it hurt your feelings and that you guys are sorry now because the sorry led to repentance and the repentance led you to clear yourself from that sin altogether. You went out of your way to clear yourself of what I was accusing and people were accusing you of. That's real apology. It has action to it. I'm afraid that David was gracious back to Saul, but he knew full well that Ralph the wolf was going back to work when it was the whistle blew. That talk is cheap sometimes. That he said pretty words, but as all it took was one Zephite to say, hey, David's over here. Okay, whistle blew. You ready to do this again, Sam? Yeah, we're doing it again. So the, the crux of the matter is, is it a godly re repentance and apology? David's able to be gracious because David knows that he's probably not sincere because he had done it so many times. He started feeling like Lucy holding the football, right? He understands, but he did it because he trusted God to continue to protect him, right? He knew God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, is the rewarder of those who do good. He understood that he had got him through a lot already. And it's okay if he's going to come after me again. I have peace about it. And it says, <clears throat> they both went their own ways. That means Saul went back to probably where he was reigning from, Jerusalem. And where did David go? Well, you're going to find out in chapter 27. Where is he going to go? He's on the run with 600 of men and their whole families. And it, I liked chapter 26. It seemed like a high watermark. It seemed like chapter 24, but he did it again. This is a godly king. As high as that was, check out chapter 27. It's only 12 verses. We'll cruise through it. David takes off and finds himself living among the enemy in Philistine. Check it out. Verse 1, 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul would despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. What? What's happening right now? I don't know how many years are between those two verses, but what is happening? David said in his heart, someday Saul's going to kill me. After all the deliverance that God had, he said in his heart, I'm going to die. And there's nothing better for me than to go down and live with the enemy, the Philistines. I could name a bunch of things, David, you could do better. Are you kidding me right now? It started with him making a bad decision. I call this uh, maybe like a discouraged decision. Here's what I think happened to, to, to David. I think David's very tired. Over a decade, probably, on the lamb. I think he's tired. And maybe you've experienced this. when it's, Sometimes it's not the trial itself. It's the length of the trial that gets you. Right? It's talk to people who have chronic disease. It's just you, every day you can't get away from it. It makes you tired and doubtful and discouraged 
because you wake up with it again and again and again and again and again. I think David was tired. And here's what I know about being tired from, from being an old, being a wrestler. Fatigue makes a coward out, out of us all. That's what I think it does. When you get tired, you make bad decisions and you're not very courageous and you get, you're in a bad place. And I think that's what happened to him. The extended trial wore down David. He became down, discouraged, doubting so much that, I don't know, I think I'm gonna die. You ever said that? I, I think I'm done. I can't do this. Yeah, David, it really hasn't been you all along anyways. It's been God. That's the David I know. But he made a discouraged decision. And if there's one time we shouldn't be making a lot of decisions, it's when you're down. And you might want to think about that the next time you're down. Because we all get down. Amen? It happens. It shouldn't be a, the, the mark of a Christian. But we all have time where we get discouraged. We get down. We get a little depressed. Life can kick you in the teeth, can it? And when you try to get up, it gives you another one. That's not lost on me. And I don't think it was lost on David. And the worst time to make a real decision is when you're in those circumstances. Right? Take a break. Don't make a, don't make, don't make a discouraged decision like David did. It's, it's not going to be good for him. For a, two or three more chapters, he's going to be on the wrong side of the fence. Dick Worthington tells a story about a guy he was in ministry with that uh, used to go on ride-alongs with cops and fell in love with it, so he became a cop. I think down in Southern California, I think. Well, this guy became well-known to all the rest of the force that if there's someone committing suicide, you call that guy because he's, like he's, he's been a pastor. He's in ministry. You get that guy there right now. Maybe he can save the day. So this guy was the go-to on suicide calls. One day, that guy was called as Dick tells the story, and he goes into a garage where there's a, a youngster with a gun in his mouth ready to kill himself. And so they send this guy in. And the guy's saying, hey, man, you don't need to make this decision right now. You're not, you're, you're, you're not in your right state of mind. Give me an hour. Just put that gun down. He's, nope, not putting his gun down. And then he made a joke. He said, you can always kill yourself next Friday. Let's talk now. And the guy laughed and put the gun down. <laughs> you can always kill yourself next week. If it's that good of an idea, think about it for a week. There's some truth to that. When you're down, don't make decisions. Take a break. Get encouraged. Let God bring you back up so you can take another breath. You can start walking with the Lord again. Make a clear clear decision. David made a decision, I think, when he was discouraged, down, not doing good. Well, let's read on. He said, in my heart, I'm going down there. I'm going to go over the border. So David arose, went over. He had 600 men who were with him. And he went to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man in his household, and David with his two wives, Hananom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And it was, when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Just one little point here. Does anybody else feel that it's ironic that David's living in Gath? Do you remember anybody else that was from Gath? Goliath? Are you... That just seems ironic to me. 
that the boy with the slingshot who killed the champion from Gath, armed only with God Almighty and three stones. Who is this? Five stones? Sorry. Sorry. Right? Now he's in Gath with the king, living on the other side, living a life of comp- compromise. And the worst part about this is he's, he brought the 600 men too, right? It's one thing to make a bad decision. Now he's got 600 men and their family in tote. It affected a lot of people. That's something worth thinking about when you make decisions. Men, women, moms, dads, kids. Sometimes it's not just your decision. Those 600 people followed David and are living a life of compromise. Yep. I wonder, I wonder why Achish accepted him. Do you remember he had been there before? Remember he had to act like a madman to get out of there? Do you remember that? He went down there and they, after, remember when, after he ate the showbread, he went down there to, and Achish was like, what are you doing here? David had to act like a madman to get out of there. God provided a way for, to, to preserve David and get out of there before they killed him. Why is he so friendly to David now? Another point you might want to think about is probably because they had a common enemy, Saul. (laughs) Now he's partnered with someone, mainly because they both don't like Saul. Be careful who you partner with, (laughs) right? (laughs) This is not a guy that you want to partner with. Verse 5, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag had belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistine was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys, the camels and the garments, and came back to Achish. So David's now a bandito, right? Did anybody catch what he asked Achish for? He asked him for a town. Hey, I'm your, he calls himself your servant, For why your servant, why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you, Achish? Now David's, by very definition, serving Achish, not God. Compromise based on one bad decision. He's nothing but a bandit. He moves down there and he goes and he raids a bunch of people, a bunch of tribes that are around. And he doesn't leave anybody alive. We'll find out why in a second, but he's might make him feel a little better because he's killing Philistines in the southern country there. That's the name of those inhabitants. That might have made him feel a little better. 
But at the end of the day, he was abandoned. He was killing everybody and taking all their stuff and coming back and giving it to Achish. He's abandoned. What is happening (laughs) with David? It's like Jekyll and Hyde. He just did something incredible in chapter 26, right? Now he's abandoned, a robber and a murderer and servant of Achish, not God. There's people that look at this chapter differently, but I can't reconcile how this is good and how this is God's will for him to be abandoned in Philistine country. It always, I mean, this is what hit me is, man, you've got to be on guard because David's an awesome guy. Now he's a man, but he fell so far so quickly. Like what's happening? Even the best of men are only men, right? David's a man. He finds himself in a pretty big mess here. And we see in the last couple of verses He makes it worse. When Achish asks, verse 10, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against Negev of Judah or against Negev of the Jeremalites or (laughs) against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell us and say, so David has done. Such was the custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be loyal to me and be my servant. So when Achish asked, where where are you you getting all this stuff from? Who who are you killing? And he said, oh, just the, he lied to him. Just the Israelites. I've been killing your enemies, right? And it said there that he killed everybody so no one could go back and tell him that he was lying. So I think he's murdering and then covering it up with a lie is what I think's really happening. Does that sound familiar for David? It might down the road a little bit. He kills a man whose wife he slept with, right? He's telling lies, murder. David had all, has all the tendencies that we all have. And he's in a bad way here. And I'm left with the fact that this was an up and down for the life of David, which we've seen. But we have a good, good God, do we not? He's a long-suffering God. Even this chapter, and it gets worse, you'll see in the next chapter, he's gonna be asked to fight against Israel. What is happening, David? David has a good God. We have a good God. Our God's long-suffering. Do you know that? He's a lot of things, but he suffers long with his people, does he not? The proof of that is your and I's mirrors that we look at in the morning when we wake up. I always say the same thing. You're a long-suffering God. Amen? He's a good God. And I'm telling you, if I was God, I would disqualify David. Doesn't seem like the kind of leader that I would want for my chosen people. But God is awesome. And he's good and he's long-suffering. Amen? 
All right, so Father, thank you so much for your word. We're thankful for the example of David and Saul and what you can teach us through it. I pray that we would leave our lives in your hands this very day. So be with us, bless us, be glorified and honored in our lives as you are in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.